The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. All right, so we've been going through the Gospel of Luke for a little over a year now, and we are in chapter 14, right? And so if you recall last week's sermon, the, the main point was, was this, and I'm just going to read it, right? Jesus offers the kingdom, a perpetual feast of peace, friendship, rest, joy, tranquility, deathlessness, immeasurable hope, and ultimately salvation. And the title of the sermon was, You're Invited, This is really good news. You can say this to everyone. Only sinners qualify, and that's all there is, right? That's why it's a feast for failures, right? So you can just say, come on in. And this is exactly what Jesus was saying. And if you remember, we had three examples of some really lame excuses. Like, yeah, no, I mean, I got some land that I already bought. I need to kind of check that thing out. I got some oxen that I've already purchased. Well, what if you don't like it? I don't think there's a return plan on oxen. Yeah, you can't. I'm not able to make it. No, I've got married and I got dishes to do or who knows what. Can't make it. Lame excuse, lame excuse, lame excuse. And Jesus is like, well, I'm just not going to have that. We're going to have a big party. We're just not going to do that. So you just go out, and I want you to invite all the outcasts, the people who would never be invited to a banquet like this, the poor, the lame. Go get them. Bring them in. What if they can't walk? Don't drag them. Carry them. But make sure that they get here because this party you don't want to miss, right? That was essentially the message last week. There was more, but that was it. And it appears that people have understood the message, right? Because why? They're responding in large number. Look at the text. Luke 14, 25 and 26. Now, great crowds. Great crowds. Picture it. Imagine it. Jesus is going about teaching, preaching, healing, giving hope, rebuking the religious elite. And people are hearing and they're accompanying him. And look what he said. He turned and he said to them, (laughs) listen to his words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I'm laughing because that is, I mean, that's a buzzkill. You can laugh. I mean, seriously, think about it. He just said, going to have the greatest party ever. You should invite everyone, bring them in, and now they're coming. And then he looks at everyone and says, yeah, but oh, by the way, this grace, this invitation comes with some demand. Let me tell you what that looks like. I mean, imagine just hearing these words. I thought we were just coming for a good old feast. You are, you are, but I mean, come on, Jesus. You wanted a full house. You wanted a big party. They're coming. This is probably the... The, the least encouraging thing you could ever say to the people who heard the message and they're like, I'm going. I'm going. All right, well, here's what it means to go where I'm going. Imagine the words. I think we come to texts like this and then we just say, oh, yeah, I know about this. You know, pick up your cross, hate everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go get lunch. <laughs> Listen to what he's saying. Do not follow me unless you hate everything you hold dear. These texts are hard to preach because I think, you know, sometimes there's people who they hear that and they're like, does that mean I have to hate my mom? I I really like my mom. Don't want to hate her. I thought we were supposed to honor and obey and love. I'm very confused. Well, let's, let's just work with this for a little bit. Don't follow me unless you hate everything you hold dear. That is strange language, but that's exactly what it says. Yes, even your dad and some are here like, check. Got me some daddy issues. Got that one. I'm a disciple. Siblings, you got to hate them. Do they exist for any other reason? Uh, I love my siblings, but I love to hate them too at times, especially when I was a kid. How about your spouse? Someone like, oh, man, I'm obeying Jesus this week. My mom? I don't know. I really like mom. Some are here like, no, I definitely don't. Um, Children? Children? When they get to be teens, that, that's an easy thing to obey at times. <laughs> My own life? Man, this, this is strange language. It's very strange language. I mean, come on, Jesus. You, you shouldn't be saying these things if you want a big party, if you want a full house. You should dangle some different carrots. 
You shouldn't, you shouldn't put that language out. Jesus would have been a terrible prosperity preacher. Horrible. He'd been awful. Right? He, that's not what you say if you want to grow a big old church. Or is it? See, a lot, a lot of churches fall for the lie that, this is, that we, we ought to spice up the word a little bit, right? We, we don't preach through books of the Bible because we come to texts like this and it's like, oh, this is awkward, right? Especially if it's family Sunday. Hate your father, hate your mother, hate your children. Welcome. Um, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of times, pastors, preachers, teachers, disciple makers, um, they want to change the word. To, to this. And it's, it's so, ooh, it's just off center, right? So, hey, life's terrible. That's okay, because God has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that true? Partially. Can be. Depends on context. Lonely? Come to Jesus. Jesus makes the best of friends. Does he make the best of friends? Yes. You might still be feeling very lonely after coming to Christ. Broke? That's all right. Come give Jesus a try and see if he doesn't come through. Oh, I've heard this so many times. Um, well, that's not Jesus' plan. Instead, it appears his ministry, when it's finally getting traction, he says this. If, I, I really want you to think about the words he's saying. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. Listen, underline it. He cannot be my disciple. That's strange, right? I, I, it does appear to be a little odd to instruct disciples to love their enemies and hate their family. So what, so what is Jesus saying? I mean, the reason this is such a shocking command is because our word for hate is often not exactly what Jesus is meaning here, right? Hate, when we, when we think of hate, we think of a hostile feeling. We, we think of hostility towards another person. We think about destroying that person or wishing that person to be destroyed, loathing their existence. That is not what Jesus means here at all. However, Jesus is using very extreme language to speak in terms of priority, to speak in terms of priority, right? So first point, salty disciples love Jesus supremely, supremely, utmost, it's what it means to be a disciple. We order everything after that. King Jesus rules. He is my God. I supremely love him. By the way, you won't always supremely love him. And in those moments, that's when you say, God, make, just like we were singing, make my heart believe. Make my heart love you supremely. Right now, it just supremely loves supreme ice cream and Netflix. Make, make my heart love you more. Right? That, that's what it means to be a disciple. It's, it's to look at your life, to look at the things you desire, the things you treasure, and say, well, right now it's not Jesus. But to be a disciple is to supremely love him. I don't supremely love him. God, make my heart believe. Help me to see. Because when I see, when I see you for who you truly are, I will become what I behold. So anytime your heart does not supremely love Christ, listen to me. There's something wrong with the disciple's heart. And I'm going to tell you, that's going to be most of your life. Sorry for that. Because you think, oh no, I've had seasons where my heart did love Jesus most. Yeah, but that's not going to be your life if you live long. Because we live in an already but not yet world, right? And so we desire to love Jesus supremely, even though that's not always our reality. Loving Christ must and will take precedent over love of all other things. He won't share. It's best for you that he doesn't. Why? Really, what, what Jesus is saying here in Luke 14, 26 is really just the first commandment said differently, right? Exodus 23, 20 verse 3 says this, you shall have no other gods before me. It's, he's just communicating that in a different way. Oh, how many times I've seen people put family above Christ. <laughs> I would go to that church that preaches the Bible, but this church where they don't preach the Bible is where my family goes. I would, but boy, my kids' games are pretty important. Right? 
So many things compete for supremacy within our, our heart, right? And if you're like, I don't know if that's true, you're not even paying attention. I'm just telling you, the war ground happens right here. It happens right here. We'll trade Jesus in for a slushy. It doesn't even have to be family, right? Many times that's the case, and Jesus knows it. And he knows it. And so he's looking at his disciples, and he's saying, you should have no other gods before me. I must be preeminent in your heart. See, what Jesus is saying paradoxically is that our love for him must be so great, so pervasive, that our natural love for family and even ourselves pales in comparison to our love for him. That's what he's saying, right? We're to regard everything, even our own being, as lesser importance than our love and commitment to Jesus. By the way, when you do that, your love for others will be so much better because you'll love them appropriately, right? I've seen too many times in my own life and in the lives of others, we'll put people on a pedestal they don't deserve to be on. And then when they fail you, you'll demonize them because they didn't live up to your idolatrous heart ways. They were never intended to. So to worship Christ first and foremost is how you love others best. And so Jesus is all about that, right? In short, nothing nothing must matter more than belonging to Jesus and being his disciple. You want an example? Think about young love, right? Some of you, it's going to be hard. You're going to think way back. Some of you are like, I'm young and I'm in love, right? But think back to it. I remember being a young guy and just for the first time noticing girls. Oh, they were so lovely, right? Before that, all I cared about was my motorcycle, my baseball cards, right? G.I. Joe's, big time, love G.I. Joe's, okay? Now, all of those things, when I started to notice girls were pretty, ceased to matter. I was willing to sell my baseball cards because I was going to get a car. Why? Because a car was a means to get a girl, right? I, I went from smelling not well to trying to smell better right? Probably put on way too much cheap cologne, right? I actually focused on clothing and you'd be like, well, you've given that up, but I'm trying. (laughs) I'm just telling you, this is what young love looks like, right? Now, yeah, we could say, but yeah, but it's not real. Okay. But, but in that moment, in that moment, that's what supreme love looks like. I just give it all away. Why? Because of this young man, this young woman. And, and, and all you can think about is that person. You're consumed. That's what, that's what it means. Now, if we're being real, that's not our heart and our mind most days when following Christ. And now, I could easily make that into a guilt saying. I'm saying that's normal. I'm saying that's normal. Well, that's not what I've been told. Well, then you've been told a bunch of garbage, and you've been living with guilt for a really long time. What I am saying, though, is that that's where the fight of faith begins. It's on that lazy emotion of desiring God. And so what do we do? We ask God for help. We engage his word. We engage in community. We sing his praises. We fill our hearts and our minds with truth. And we ask the Lord to set our heart aflame to desire him, to love him, to treasure him, to enjoy him supremely. Not just trying to white knuckle it. Not faking it. But to enjoy him. Where does a love like that come from? Well, remember back in Luke 7, um, we had a story about a Pharisee who who asked Jesus to come to dinner, right? And if you remember, he didn't wash Jesus' feet. He didn't didn't kiss Jesus, which in that time was an appropriate way of greeting, right? It'd be like a a hug. Um, He didn't do anything to show affection for Jesus. And suddenly there's just a woman from the street, a.k.a. A lady of the night, that's a nice way to say it, right? And she just appears, this prostitute, and she's leaning over Jesus' bare feet, and she's weeping. She's weeping on them, and tears are falling, right, from her eyes onto his dirty feet. And then she takes her hair, and she begins to wash the feet of Christ. That's an incredibly provocative moment. The Pharisees were not excited. They did get bent out of shape, And and they said this to him. They said, if you were a prophet, if you were a prophet, you would know what kind of woman this is, for she's a sinner. And and Jesus takes the moment to tell them a story. And if you remember the story, he tells a story about two debtors. And one owed them, you know, basically $5,000. The other one owed five. And he forgave them both their debt. 
right? And he's telling this story. And he said, who would love that person more? And the Pharisees said, well, the one, I suppose, from whom canceled the larger debt, right? So if I owed you $5,000, that's a big deal. If I owed you five, maybe it's not a big deal. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. See, getting all your theological answers correct isn't always the best case because they got it right, but they did not understand. And he says to them, when I came here, you actually didn't kiss me. You didn't wash my feet. But from the time that I have come in, this woman has wept over my feet. She has washed them with her tears. She has wiped them with her hair. And the language he uses is because she has been forgiven much. That's the language. What's he saying? Those who have been forgiven much love much. Can I just tell you something? You've all been forgiven much. Well, I'm not that bad. You're, you're really, you're worse off than you can imagine if that's your thought. We've all been forgiven an infinite amount of sin because we, we love a holy God. Well, I just had some little sins, no such thing in Jesus' kingdom. Why does this matter? Because that's where love comes from, right? It comes from being stunned by being loved by God. So much that he would send his son to die for your mega, my mega sins. See, this woman sees properly. This love comes from being overwhelmed in the person and work of Christ dying in our place, on our behalf, and resurrecting from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death so that you and I can enjoy a party that lasts forever. Oh, by the way, the party's not the big deal. Jesus is the big deal. It's all about Christ. Meaning, if, if, if you could have a party forever and Christ not be there, it wouldn't be worth going. He's the main attraction, right? And, and yet, we think, well, I'll get excited about that when I die or when he returns. But if you're not excited about him coming now, something's off. Something's off. Many times people are very excited about heaven, but not excited about Jesus. And I'm saying you might not get either. Why do I say that? Because that's exactly what Jesus is saying. See, see, when the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection is understood head and heart, it will grip you. And you will taste and see that Jesus is the treasure your heart has longed for its entire existence. Right? So, delight in Christ. Be satisfied in him. Now, here's the thing. We know that Jesus is not calling us to hate anyone, right? So, so why this language? He says, the world will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Of course, he doesn't say, hate your mother, hate your father, but he just said, hate your mother, hate your father. What's he getting at? What, what he's saying is the only way possible to love him and to love others is to love him supremely in a way that you, if, if, your, if your parents said, no, 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 you're not going to enjoy Jesus. And you're like, well, no one, my parents would never say that. They've been praying. I'd go to church for a long time. There are parents who will say that. Then he's saying, you follow him. And he'll work it out. And he will give you grace, even if they never change their mind. Even if they never change their mind. And when we love him, as he deserves, our love for our spouses, our children, our parents, our siblings, will seem like hate in comparison. Why? Because... Not like, oh, I hate you, but because you're not my God. You're just not my God. I, and that frees me to love you as I ought. Okay. Well, then, what does that look like? Well, let's look. He continues. Luke 14, 20. By the way, if you get everything I just said, everything else is gravy now. I'm just telling you, you can take a nap. Some of you are tired. I know. You had a long weekend. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. If you get point one, you get the rest of the sermon. You just get it. If you don't get point one, nothing else I'm about to say is going to make sense to you. Okay? So let's look. Luke 14, 27 through 33. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what kind of, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who has come against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone who of you who does not renounce or give up all that he has cannot, there's that word, cannot be my disciple. See, the emphasis in these two parables is actually not confusing at all. Right? It's the tower building, the king gone to war, What's, what's Jesus saying? Count the cost. That's it. It's, it's not confusing. He's saying count the cost, right? Verse 27 illustrates this, right? Hating one's life might actually involve what? Picking up your cross, bearing your cross, coming after Jesus Christ. What does that mean, right? To be clear, carrying one's cross, we see throughout the Gospels, that's a daily thing. Wake up every day and die. It's strange language, but that's exactly what he's saying. Is, in one sense, not figurative language. Now, if I start to see you all walking around with like a wooden beam strapped across your, your back and you're walking and carrying a physical cross and be like, bro, I think you've misunderstood, right? But in one sense, it's, it's not figurative in the sense that a lot of people make it. They would say, well, I'm, if I'm dealing with a hardship, right? Or I'm dealing with um, a disappointment in life. Like my boss is such a meanie. What a jerk. It's just my cross to bear. That's not what Jesus is getting at at all. At all. And how many times I hear that? It's not at all what he's saying. Well, then what is he saying? The cross is an instrument of death, of execution. That's what it is, right? And so if Jesus were here now, and we were all walking around, and we're in the crowd, you might hear him say something like this, because it would be contextually more accurate. He might say this, plop your big old booty in an electric chair and die. Now follow me. And you might be like, that is strange. That is so strange. How do I do that? We wear a cross. I'm all for it. I'm good. That's great. Understand this, though. It is a strange thing to do. Nobody wears electric chairs around their neck or lethal injection. Why a cross? See, see, don't don't over-spiritualize it. What he's saying is, if you're going to follow me, your life ceases to exist. You're dead. That's what he's saying. And if you're like, well, that's just not the version of Christianity I've come to understand, then you've never understood Christianity. You just never understood it. He's saying, pick up your cross. The cross in, in ancient Roman times, and even before that, it, it included shame. It was meant to kill you, but there would be a lot of ways to kill you, but it was to kill you very slow. The word excruciating that we get in our English language comes from from the cross. They wanted you to be in pain your whole life, which implies that following Jesus Christ will not always be, well, this is lovely. It's going to be painful at times. Count it. It's exactly what he's saying. See, in America, it's hard to teach this at times, but I can tell you right now, working with disciples from other countries who come from a Muslim background, it's not hard at all. I'll tell you why. We'll take months to explain this is the cost. They already know the cost. They could teach me. They could teach me, and they do teach me. Because for me to say I'm a Christ follower, at best, it just means their family disowns them. That's best. But I have a friend who it meant getting his teeth knocked out. It meant also having this woman's children abducted by her family so that she wouldn't teach them the ways of Christ because they wanted her children to grow up Muslim. And they all understood it, and they all said yes. (laughs) I might have to give up a Friday night. Oh my goodness. Lord help us. The cross was for executing people. He's saying, you can't be my disciple if you won't die. Oh, but we want to live and add Jesus to that life. And he says, that's not how it works. By the way, that's why many people are miserable disciples. Because you 
You just won't open your hands and say, I tap, I give, surrender. And so you live a dualistic life. You're like, I'm kind of about Jesus on Sunday and Wednesdays because we have something going on that night that's churchy. The rest of the week, mine, wrong. You'll be miserable forever. I'm just telling you right now, the only way forward is the way in. You're right at the break point where waves hit you, right? You're not on the beach. You're not in the water. You're just getting crushed like a little kid. You got sand and salt water in your eyes. You're spitting up seashells and you're hating life. I'm saying either get up on the beach and just, let's be real. That's, I'm not in. Or just come on in where the water's deep and he will catch you. That's the life he's calling us to. And if that happens, then point two will be understood. Salty disciples love Jesus sacrificially. <laughs> and you'll be like, it's just not even a sacrifice. But it is a sacrifice. But I'd give anything. Why? Because he's given everything. And I have everything in him. What can man do to me? They cannot take anything from me that ultimately matters for eternity. So disciples follow Christ on a path of self-denial. This is what it means to be about Christ. Disciples embrace suffering. They don't beg for it. That's just weird, right? But when it comes, we're not surprised. As though like, well, where are you, God? Oftentimes, he's showing up in your greatest disaster. Why? Because you being more like Christ doesn't happen on sunshiny days. It happens in heartache. It happens in loss. Why? Because in those moments, he's opening your white-knuckled hands up to say, all I actually have is you. And he's like, yeah, that's true. And you're enough. Right? Disciples understand that following Jesus is really a series of death. It's like a thousand paper cuts. That's what it is to follow Christ. Sometimes it's a big moment, but it's a perpetual dying. That's what it's like to follow Christ. C.S. Lewis, I think, captured this very well. So I'm going to read a quote from him. The Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop, stop it, but I want to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. End quote. See, what we must understand and what we most desperately need is you and I need to die to ourselves and live for Christ. And it's not a one-time thing. This is what it means to follow Christ. Every day, you must wake up and say, King Jesus, you're supreme. May I shrink. May you increase. Continue to make my heart love you first and foremost. It's all about Christ. It's about his mission. It's about his message. It's about his glory. And if you've never understood Christianity that way, then that's okay. I'm really glad you're here, but this is 101 stuff. This ain't advancement. Oh, this might be like, you know, Navy SEALs for Jesus. No. This is the entry in to the party. That's the narrow gate. That's the narrow gate. Do you see why it's narrow? Because you can't bring in all your stuff if you're coming into the party. I'm dead. Ah, now you're getting it. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at in these words. In other words, Jesus does not want disciples who simply just want to go along for a ride, soaking up some teaching here and there, the stuff they like, leaving the stuff they don't behind, like an a la carte, you know, opportunity of the word, right? Um, I like that value. Not so much for that value, right? No, it's your lives will be radically transformed from what they were. Or you're not understanding. You're not having ears to hear. It will literally affect everything. Everything, right? All are invited to come to the party and enjoy the God, God's invitation, right? To, to live in the new kingdom with him, which comes down. But it comes with demand. It, it, but here's the beauty. Grace not only pardons, but it empowers. You've got to get this. 
Because if you don't get this, you'll think, well, Jesus got me, and now if it's meant to be, it's up to me. <laughs> Woo, that's a lame life. What I'm telling you is, the work of faith is just waking up every day saying, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2, 20 and 21. It's, it's you're my king, and he will give you the power to do that. Because if you try to do that in your own strength and in your own might, if you do it well, you'll be the most proud, miserable, pharisaical type to be around. And when you fail, and you will fail, well, then you'll be very destroyed and despondent because you didn't live up to your own thing. But here's the deal. If you understand the gospel, then what you understand is God will give you the grace, but he will give you a person. He will give you the Holy Spirit who empowers you to love him and to love the people around you and literally the power to wake up and to die and to open up your hands and to say, it's all yours. I trust you. I believe in you. And when that happens, that power will transform you. It's, it's all grace, but it's participating with the grace he's providing. Right? We're, grace is not against effort, but the effort is I believe. I trust you. Lord, help me to believe. Right? It's power to trust and believe. Now, here's the deal. Unfortunately, all too often, the church has tried to sell people a different, less costly form of discipleship. It's a fact. I've seen it. Right? Preachers who water down the truth of Scripture in order to put butts in seats and cash in banks. I've seen it. And the, the reason they watered down the, 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 the Word of God, the promises of God, is, is because they, they treat Jesus as though he's like some sky fairy who just loves to throw out some spirit sprinkles upon your life to make your life better, as though Jesus is only there to serve your ends and your means. And he is in one sense. In one sense, he's there to serve. Serve you what? His life so that you can have life. But not just your selfish desires when you actually don't want anything to do with Jesus. You just want the stuff he can give. That's called idolatry. All throughout the Bible, if you want to understand the Bible, God's people see that God's great. Then they're like, yeah, I'm enjoying life and I'm forgetting God's great. And then they go and worship God's made in their own image. They worship creature, not creator. God in his kindness will allow pain to come into their lives so that they can say, what are we doing? And they might turn back to the God whom they say they love. The reason he does that is the same reason any good parent will allow their children only to go so far before they say, sweetie, I love you too much. You're playing near the road. You can't be there. And you tell them once, you tell them twice, they don't listen. And then you have to inflict some kind of discipline because it's most loving. This is the kind of God we worship. But many times we do not want to talk like this because at the end of the day, we just want God to serve me as though I'm king. And he'll have none of it. He'll have none of it. The reason we see churches do this, you don't have to guess whether they're doing it. Look around. People are flooding out of the church left and right. Why? Because it's not what they said it would be. Well, my, my Jesus isn't serving me the way you said. I came here. I gave my money. I thought my health, my wealth, my relationships, and everything would just get better. They might. They might get worse. Well, that's not what you told me. Well, Jesus never said that. In the end, at the end of the day, there is nothing in a disciple's life that's off limits to Jesus. Nothing. It's his. You're his. Your life's his. You don't have your money, your this, your that. It's his. You're his. It's not off limit, right? So following means, following Jesus means you have no veto power to the life you have. Well, I sure wish I did. Me too. Because I'd change some things. But then I have to remind myself, I actually don't understand. Because if I understood all the things that God understands, which I can't, I'm not God, then I wouldn't change probably a thing because everything he's doing and allowing right now in my life is to make me more like Christ. Because that's what it means to be a disciple. So, if following Jesus requires us to give up financial security... Cozy comforts, good school for our kids, respect of others, 
even our long-cherished hopes and plans, then so be it. So be it. You might be like, I'm not there. That's okay. He'll work with you right where you're at. Because I can tell you right now, when I look back how, and I normally don't talk about myself in sermons because I think it's weird, but when I look back to how I landed in Greensburg, I'm like, I wouldn't have done that. (laughs) How did I get here? I know how I got here. Thousand small steps that the Lord took me on. And all I did was whatever was the next step in front of me that he placed, I just said, by God's grace, he gave me the power. Just take a step. And so wherever you're at right now, whatever that step is, you may know. You may know there's a particular sin in your life or a particular thing that God's calling you to give up, to lay down, to put down, to follow him, to trust him where he's leading you. And you might be like, I'm just so terrified to take that next step. Take the next step. Because wherever he's leading you is always great. Because that's where he is. You can trust him, right? You can trust him. And as you do, you'll get down the road. And in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, you'll look back and you'll be like, I don't even know how I got here. But I know how I got here. Because God is actively at work in my life. And by the way, if you choose not to lay it down, he'll work with that too. He's so committed for you. He will do this work. I just have found in my own life, I don't do it perfectly, it's just so much easier to say, yes, Lord. But I don't wake up there. Often I don't arrive there after a week or two weeks. Many times I wrestle through a lot of things and say, "Eh, here you go, no, that's mine. Trust him. Why? And when you have trouble trusting him, look to the cross, look to the empty grave and say, that's my God. And if I can trust him with my salvation, surely you can trust him with anything else. Anything else. And if you can't, then you've not understood salvation. I'm just telling you, you've not understood it. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means something's not connecting for you. Because if you can understand it, oh, wherever you go, Lord's where I want to be. Help me. Help my heart believe that. So there's nothing in our lives, mark it right now, that we can say off limits, whether it be family, spouse, children, finances, you name it. To take up our crosses is to suffer many things with Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow him, listen, instead of your heart. Oh, you don't want to follow your heart. Your heart's a wreck. Give me a break. It is wicked. It is deceived. Who can understand it? God can. And he says, it's wicked. Follow Christ. Who's better than your heart? Because your heart leads you to a lot of heartache. I promise you. Here's the thing, though. I want you to understand, life comes after death. You can't have resurrection apart from death. So it's a good life. Often we try to get heaven without having to die. But you have to go into the tomb before you can come out of it. And that's what he calls us to. It's what he calls, we, oftentimes we don't want to do this. We want to have heaven without dying. And what we call it, sometimes, listen, I'm not picking on all this stuff, but I'm just telling you, I see too much of it creeping into a lot of disciples' thinking is we call it self-help. That's, that's crown without a cross. Oftentimes what we call it is life coaching. We, we want the gifts, but not the giver. Now, there's a way to do self-help and life coaching, I'm sure, that's wonderful and gospel-centered. I call that discipleship. I call it discipleship. But many times what we want is we want what God can give, but we actually don't want God. So all those things oftentimes become ways of manipulating God to get goodies. And he will not have it. So many times we're just attempting to manipulate God and we'll say, tell us what to do and we'll do it so I can get what I want. And here's what he says. The last thing we expect him to say is take up your cross. (laughs) That's your message. That's your advice. (gasps) Die and be resurrected to new life. Oh, Jesus, this sounds awful. This is the only way, by the way. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are the words of Christ, not me. I'm not the way to anything except bacon and a good time sometimes. Jesus says, through the narrow way, 
is the entrance to the eternal party where I will be. Will you be with him? That's the question. We see death as an end to our life, but, but perhaps understandably, because it is. It's no longer your life. That's what Jesus is saying. And if you've understood, yeah, I want to be at the seat. I want to be at the party. You'll gladly do this. You'll humbly do this. He'll give you the grace to do this. Why? Because he's where life is. He's where life is. In John 6, the same kind of thing was happening after Jesus did some real miracles with like bread and and some fish. It was a good time. Kids lunchable. We got thousands of people. How are we going to feed them? Shazam, right? And there it goes. And they're like, man, this is amazing. Like everywhere we go, you're just feeding us. You're healing some folks. And he goes, yes. Now here's the deal. He said, you must listen to the language. This is what it says in John 6. Eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to follow me. And they're like, whoa, that's strange. That's a hard teaching. They actually did not think that they needed to start chewing on him like it was a zombie apocalypse. They understood he meant I'm all consuming. You must consume me to have life. And they said, that's a hard teaching. Who can understand it? They turn and they walk away. And Jesus is like, please don't leave. I really need you guys. And he didn't say any of that. He was silent as they walked away from the one who can give life. And his disciples said, Jesus, actually, they didn't say anything. Jesus said to them, do you want to go too? (laughs) Imagine that. Do do you want to go with them? And Peter said, Lord, where would I go? You're the one who has the words of life. And they kept following as they walked away. Now, some of those people might have come back around. We don't know. To be clear, the, the call to carry a cross is a one-way trip of death every day. The level of, this is the entry level of commitment to be a disciple of Christ. Verse 33 says, listen, again, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This may seem extreme, it may seem unreasonable, but the point of discipleship is to be more like Christ, and the only way to be more like Christ is for you to die. That's the point. I had a whole bunch of things I wanted to say there. We're going to skip that. I I will tell you this. I was going to take 15 minutes to say this. Jesus is not asking you to do anything he has not already gone ahead and done. That's what I was wanting to say. I was just going to take time to unpack that a little bit more. Do you, do you understand? Like Jesus, he counted the cost. He left his father. He left the throne room where angels and seraphim sung, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The, the foundations of earth threshold shook. And he left that to put on flesh. We're coming up to December. That means baby Jesus, right? And, and talking cows. But really what it means is the Lord of glory put on flesh and lived in very humble estates. And the, the creation that he spoke into existence is now he's a helpless baby. Why? Because he counted everything. And guess why he was born? It's not confusing. To die. That's why he came. He knew he was going to go from a cradle. He was going to go to a cross so that he could die for sinners like you and I, so that sinners like you and I could enjoy Christ Almighty in in a new heaven, in a new earth when Jerusalem comes down. He counted the cost so that we could be made lovable, transformed, and empowered to enjoy him forever. Because in our current state, with all our sin, all our rebellion, we could never enjoy King Jesus forever. And he loved us to the point that we could. Why would you not follow him? So I took two minutes to do that instead of 15. That's good. Now let's get to the end because he has, there's two more verses in this, this chapter. It's the verses 34 and 35 Salt is good. Amen. Anybody, can I get an amen? amen? I mean, I love me some salt. Too much probably, but my cholesterol and all the other things are good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
This text is a little, mm, it's debated by a lot of theologians what Jesus actually means here. You can check them on your own. I don't have time. But here, can I just tell you something? It's impossible for pure sodium chloride to lose taste. It's impossible. You can let salt sit there till Jesus returns. It will still taste like salt. So will margarine, which is weird. Well, you shouldn't probably eat it. But <laughs> real butter is better anyway. Um, that's free, not in the notes. Jesus knows that salt does not lose its saltiness. He, he knows that. So then what, what's he saying? Well, like I said, there's four competing arguments, but here's what I think he's really getting at. He, Jesus knows it's impossible. He, meaning half-hearted discipleship is not discipleship at all. He's saying you're not salt if you won't do that. I think that's what he's getting at. Now, you might argue with me, and so would other people, but I really do think that's the case. It's impossible for a disciple to be anything less than salty. It's what it means to be a disciple. It's exactly what he's saying. So if we're not committed disciples of Christ, then he's saying you're of no spiritual use. What are we to be doing until Christ returns salt and light so that more people come to the party. But if your life doesn't look like it's did, if it looks exactly the same before you came to Jesus, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road, they're going to conclude, what's the point? This is a strange hobby. And I agree. So, so if you're not all in, man, can I just encourage you? Can I implore you? God, Holy Spirit, help them to see, to come in. Because that's where life is found. It's where the good life is found. Come in. Come in. What are you afraid to just die of? What is it? I don't know if I can trust him with my marriage. I don't know if I can trust him with my kids. I don't know if I can trust him with my 401k, my Roth IRA, this, that. I just don't know. You can. How do you know? Christ willingly came and died to save you. To save you. Why? Because he loves you. He did not owe you any of that. He willingly did that because he loves you. Why would you not follow him wherever he calls you to go? Because you, you just don't understand his love. Because there's just no other place I want to be. And when my heart doesn't feel that, Lord, help me believe. And he will. That's the last point. Salty disciples are that. They're salty. One last quick story. I, I, when you come in contact with salt, you'll know it. I promise you. You know how I found that out? I'm going to tell you a real quick story. My grandmother used to make iced tea, but not like Elaine, because Elaine's from the south. And Southerners know how to make iced tea. Elaine makes great iced tea, and I love drinking it. It'll probably produce diabetes in you if you're not careful. But I love it. My grandmother, not so much. She made sun tea, and she only put a little sprinkle of sugar in it. But I grew up on red dye number 40 and a pound of sugar called Kool-Aid. That's what I grew up on that. That and secondhand smoke, right? That was my life. And I loved it. Bologna and cheese sandwiches on Wonder Bread with ketchup. Now, I was hooked on sugar. I loved it, man. And when I'd go to grandma's, it just was so putrid because there wasn't enough sugar. So often I would come in after playing or working and I would grab that big old semi-sweet tea and I would add sugar. More than was right. And I would just stir it up. And I would stir it up. This one day, I'm just stirring it up. And the, the, the grain, granules, things aren't going away, which was strange. But I just kept stirring. I just kept stirring. I'm like, I don't know. What's going on with this thing? Must be some strange sugar. And I gulped that thing down and found out real quick, that is not sugar. It was salt. And I just, so sick. It was disgusting. It was awful. But can I tell you, when you come in contact with a disciple of Christ, you generally don't have to ask. It's, it's different. It tastes way different. It stands out. It stands out. Salt permeates and transforms food. What do you think will happen if disciples of Christ engage culture? engage the world. 
the world will say, that ain't sugar. Something different. I don't know what it is, but it's something different. Friends, this is what Jesus is calling us to. Will you follow him? Will you gladly pick up your cross? Will you say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Will you take the step? Will you trust that he'll give you the grace and the power to do so? I pray so because this is the core of discipleship. There is no other way. You cannot be a disciple apart from this call. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have done everything that we could not do. Jesus, you willingly stepped down from the throne room of heaven, put on flesh, lived a perfect life, obedient to the Father, always saying yes, where we don't always say yes, but you perfectly said yes. You perfectly obeyed. You lived the life we could not. You willingly allowed yourself to be spit upon, mocked, tortured, beaten, bloody, stripped naked, nailed to a cross so that people who are warring after you and against you, like us, could actually be adopted into the family of God. You became an enemy of the Father so that enemies like us could be sons and daughters. This is the radical nature of the gospel. This is the good news that saves. You substituted yourself in the place of sinners. But because you had no sin, you triumphantly resurrected from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And you call everyone everywhere now to repent, to turn from their selfish, wicked ways, and to put their faith and trust in Christ, who has done everything that we might have life. And you rule now and you reign now in heaven and you are the only mediator between a holy God and a sinful humanity and you call everyone to come in through the narrow gate. But the way in is through death. It's by trusting that we were crucified with you. But we were then resurrected with you to be new creatures. A new creation. Ones who love God and love one another and seek to love the people that you've placed in our lives. So Holy Spirit, empower us to do this. Oh God, how we need you to do this work. We cannot do this work. Lord, create in us a spiritual taste by that longs to love you, to treasure you, to enjoy you, to count our lives as cheap as we lovingly follow you for the small amount of time that we're on this earth so that we may come in contact with people and they may come in contact with the God who knows and loves them. We, we need you to do this. Holy Spirit, God, we're asking you to do this work in us and through us for your name's sake and for the good of others. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.